Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to pick up tonight and continue the story here in verse 19. There's already been a genealogy, a genealogy of Ishmael, and now we begin to see what will eventually be the Jewish people, the forebearer of all of them, the 12 tribes, Jacob and his brother Esau. As we look at these two sons of Isaac and Rebekah, we we are going to see the the beginning of what still exists in the Middle East today uh, as a tremendous struggle. And that struggle is going to begin in the womb tonight. It continues to this day in the reality of the two nations. And this is one of those passages where you can look at your Bible and you can go, my Bible predicted this exact thing would exist. That these two brothers, that the younger would rule over the older, and that not were there just two children that were there in Rebecca's womb, but there were two nations that were in Rebecca's womb. And so... As we pick up in verse 19, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us as we finish up here in chapter 25. Father, we again are so grateful for your love for us and the way that you speak to us through the power of your word. And we pray that we'd be encouraged and strengthened and built up tonight. Uh, We ask that you would bless us with understanding and knowledge and wisdom into all things as your word speaks, that we as your servants hear and obey listen and learn. And so God, be with us tonight, encourage us, strengthen us to receive what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 19, for this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. And you remember that Abram became Abraham. We're going to see these name changes consistently. We're we're going to see uh, come onto the scene Jacob tonight, and he will eventually uh, become Israel. And, and so as these name changes occur, there's always a reason for it. And so keep your eye on those name changes. And Abraham begot Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, of the Syrian of Padan, Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. And so you can kind of see the connection here in the Middle East. And these countries uh, still exist today. Syria has basically always been Syria. And in fact, Damascus, its capital, is the oldest continuously inhabited city on the face of the earth. It has had people living there for about 3,500 years. It's never been abandoned. And so the prophecy of the book of Isaiah that says that one day Damascus is going to become a ruinous heap is still yet future because it is still an inhabited city. And so we see the beginning of the Syrian history. We see the beginning of these nations. And now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? 
And so she did what every last one of us should do when we have a question that deeply concerns us, and that is she inquired of the Lord. She went to inquire of the Lord. There's a tremendous lesson here in these beginning opening verses of this particular part of this chapter. Because this is very often the last thing that we do. We have questions, we're concerned, we, we don't quite understand what God is doing, why he might be allowing something, and we go talk to everybody but the Lord. We talk to our friends, we talk to our family, we talk to our dogs, we talk to our cats. If you have a parrot, you may even talk to the parrot, you talk to everybody but God. And so in this case, this is a shift, a paradigm shift, if you will, in, in this lineage of Jesus where for the first time the first thing that somebody does that is in the proper order is to go and actually ask God why these things are so. Abraham kind of did it after the fact. Adam certainly did it after the fact and so the patriarchs are filled with all kinds of people that talk to the Lord after they'd gotten themselves into some type of trouble. They moved on their own without the Lord. And so the Lord answers her in verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Can you imagine getting that as a mom? What do you mean two nations? I mean, I think they're both related to me, and we're from, you know, nation X, Y, or Z. There are two nations in your womb, and the reason this is important is because it's prophetic. This is God speaking into her life. We don't know whether this happened through a prophet. Maybe it was a theophany and an appearance of God himself. Maybe it was a word from the Lord directly to her. We do not know. But the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And if that wasn't clear enough, made it really clear, two people shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And now this is a reversal of culture. This is a reversal of custom. Because it was always the other way around. But in the Lord's economy, he almost always reverses that order. Because God's not a respecter of persons, nor is he a respecter of customs and culture. God does what God wants to do because he's sovereign. And so here we have one of those cases, the older shall serve the younger. And so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. And he was like a hairy garment all over, a Sasquatch baby. I, you know, I, I'm not sure that's what you want to hear. You know, you're sorry, your baby is hairy all over. But nonetheless, that's what's said here. And there's going to be a connection between this particular fact and exactly who Esau is going to, going to become. And so they called his name Esau, which, by the way, means Harry. Not Harry with an A-R-R-Y, but Harry as an H-A-R-Y. And afterward, his brother came out. And his hand took hold of Esau's heel. And so his name was called Jacob, Jacob. 
And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, notice the difference between the two ages that are listed here. Married at 40, babies born at 60, for 20 years they trusted the Lord. For 20 years they, they, they believed God. For 20 years they continued. For 20 years they inquired of the Lord to see what he would do. And God proved himself once again to be faithful. And so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. So you kind of have the guy who shops at Bass Pro Shops at Cabela's, and and you have the guy who's a coffee snob, who, you know, likes to wear skinny jeans. I'm not picking on anybody, but there's a difference here. You got one who's kind of the man's man, probably played rugby, and the other guy played chess. I don't know. But there were two totally different personalities. Now, I want you to notice something very unique. They came from the same household. Sometimes I get asked this question. I, I raised them both. I don't know why one's different. Well, you're not the first one to experience that. Just because there are twins or just because two children are born in the same family does not mean they are going to be carbon copies of one another. And in fact, very often they will have different personalities and very often they will represent a very specific part of who you are as parents. Connie and I have two boys. They're separated by roughly two and a half years and they are very different in many ways. They were raised in the same household. They, they've seen the same things. They've known nothing but me. They were born in the ministry. They both still serve in the ministry, but they're completely different. Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And so you can kind of see you know, here's dad's like, why don't you go get me a ribeye? And mom's going, hey, can we sit down and talk about what's going on in the, in the world today? There's even a, a little bit of a gravitation, one parent to one son. Now, Jacob cooked stew and Esau came, when, and Esau came in from the field and was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. And therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, I want you to notice this. He gets two names, all here in a handful of verses. He's born, his birth name is Esau, meaning hairy, and his new name is Edom, meaning red. And he will be the father of a very specific group of people known as the Edomites. And they come from a land that is very red, you know it is modern-day Jordan. And, of course, Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes, the children of Israel. So you have here the birth of modern-day Jordan and the progenitor of modern-day Israel. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what's a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear swear to me this day. 
And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and a stew of lentils, beans, peas. And then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Interesting set of circumstances, and you can kind of see a little bit of Father Abraham and his two boys, the way they were raised, the things that they learned to do. As you look at this, the book of Genesis is actually a, 10 successive generations are told us. It's this lineage that really provides the backdrop so that when we get to, to Messiah that we can track him all the way back to Adam. But here you have the generations of, of Isaac. Uh, and there's a couple of things that you can see here. That very often the generations that are described in the scriptures are generations of cumulative messes which human beings have made out of their lives. So don't be surprised if you run into a few situations in your own life where you've made a mess out of a couple of things and God's still faithful, he's still merciful and he can still fix pretty much any mess that you can make if you'll give him the opportunity to do so, if you'll turn from those things. And, and so it becomes a cycle of obedience and the disobedience, and then from that disobedience back to obedience and repentance and, and ultimately back into this place to where God can work in your life. And, and while this is not God's plan, God does not plan for us to be disobedient and then obedient. He wants us to leave the disobedience out. I want you to notice something. God blesses obedience. And so whether you've been disobedient and are now obedient or whether you've mostly been obedient, God blesses obedience. God does not bless our disobedience. He may tolerate. He may even fix the problems that we create, but he really wants to bless us in our obedience. And so it's in that place of obedience that we see the hand of God. If you want a sure way to make sure that you don't hear from God very often, just simply be disobedient to the things of the Lord. And I can guarantee you the only things you're going to hear are things you're probably not going to like. Like, this is going to hurt a whole lot. Or, I'm sorry, we need to fix this, Jeff, so we're, we're going to work on a couple of things here. And in that vein, we need to remember that whatever we do as parents, however we live our lives, whatever's going on in your home, you are actively teaching your children to follow your example. And so don't be surprised if they pick up your disobedient habits and do the very same things themselves. And sometimes they will even take it to a new level. That's why when people come in and they have, you know, parenting questions and I sit down with them I will usually run through are there any things that you are doing as a couple as a family is there something that you're doing that is helping your children learn these behaviors because that's the first thing that has to be fixed because your children will be impossible to shift and mold apart from a miraculous work of God if you are doing one thing and telling them to do something else. If you are living in disobedience and you're asking them to be obedient, the two ends will always reconcile themselves. 
Disobedience will breed disobedience and obedience will breed obedience in your children. So you cannot expect your children to be more obedient to the things of the Lord than you are. If you're not parents of prayer, don't be surprised when your children don't pray. If you're not a parent of faith, don't be surprised if your children don't have much faith. Now, while it is their problem and while it is their doing, once they get to that age to where they can make decisions for themselves, you're setting a paradigm in your home where your children are learning and having ingrained in their thinking that it's okay to be disingenuous if you're living one way and yet telling them to live another. Very often I run into these things with the issue of drinking and alcohol. I don't understand why my children drink, and I'll ask the parents, do you drink? Well, yeah, but we're older. Serious as a heart attack. That is very often what is said. It's an adult beverage. No, it's alcohol. And you showed your children that it was okay, and now they have a problem with alcohol. Same is true for pot smoking. Well, you know, we do it in moderation. Well, your kids don't have a clue what moderation is, so when they see you doing it, they're just going, well, mom and dad toke. Amen? So, so don't be shocked when your parents and your kids kind of look the same. The same is true with relationships. When parents are not faithful to one another, what do you think the kids learn to do in their relationships? They learn to be unfaithful. When you don't tell the truth, what do you think the children learn? That it's okay to be untruthful. You just have to have a good reason for it. We're getting a lesson here a very primal one on the necessity of us living godly in Christ Jesus in this world to give our children the best chance that they can have. And I want you to notice that Jacob here and Esau are learning a few things from their parents. What kind of examples are we setting for our kids? Are we examples of obedience to the word of God? Or are we examples of disobedience? You see, the plain and simple fact is the Lord loves family. You know the Lord's author of the family, right? He created family. He gave it the the shape that it is. He, He designed for there to be one father and one mother and the children from those two people And he designed the family units, the smallest building block of human society. God loves family. And so here, Isaac is 40 years old when God selects Rebecca to be his wife. And I'm sure that by that time, we saw it certainly in Isaac's obedience. Remember what he did. I mean, he was willing to lay down his life on the altar, right? So we we know that there was a godly influence in the home. We know that some of what Abraham taught Isaac made its way into Isaac's life 
into Rebecca's life. But when parents are devoted to one another and they're also devoted to the Lord, that is the best possible example that you can be to your children. Devoted to each other and devoted to the Lord. And that's why you can see that this example here that's set in prayer. Now remember, Rebecca and, and, and Isaac in this situation, they don't come from the same neighborhood. They were from different sides of the world. Rebecca's from what we would call modern-day Syria. Isaac is from Israel. And so in that sense, they're from uh, a different neck of the woods. But in the, the thing that bound them together was their relationship with God. If you want to learn how to overcome differences within your marriage relationship, center your marriage on a relationship with God. Let him be the one that dictates what your marriage looks like, how it functions, the way that you conduct yourself in marriage. If you want to have the best opportunity to give your children stability, then let everyone be accountable to the Lord. Notice the first thing that we see. We should pray first instead of worrying and scheming. Pray first instead of worrying and scheming. You see, what Isaac had learned from his parents was, let's scheme and let's worry. And so here comes Rebecca on the scene, and this is so true. When God chooses our mates for us, very often he will select someone who's in some cases, diametrically opposite to you. I have a lot of the same types of likes and dislikes, but there are a few areas of life where she is the perfect balance to, to my idiosyncrasies. The, the bizarre things that I think sometimes, she somehow manages to see those things clearly. And so the Lord has brought into Isaac's life a woman who is a little bit more spiritual, honestly, I think, than than Isaac at times. And she's obviously a lot more outgoing in her ways that she relates to the Lord. First thing she does is, man, honey, we got to go talk to the Lord. We need to pray. That's why Paul would admonish us, pray without ceasing in all things, by prayer and through supplication. Make your request known to God, and then the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we wonder why we don't have the peace of God, and then we all of a sudden we have that epiphanal moment, the light goes on, it's like, oh yeah, I forgot to actually ask him about this. Rebecca turned to the Lord in prayer. And notice what's in focus here. She's praying about her kids. She's praying about her children. Sometimes in our, in our culture, we almost look at children as though they're a burden. We almost look at children like, well, you know, I guess it's that time. We need to have kids now. Instead of how God sees it, especially in, in the 127th Psalm, they're actually a blessing from the Lord. They're a heritage. They're supposed to be a consideration in our lives. We wonder why so many kids feel like they're kind of a, a difficulty. I can tell you as I spent so many 
years, decades ministering to kids. Very often, the one thing that they would tell me is, well, I just feel like I'm a burden to my parents. Children are not a burden. They are a blessing. And they are a tremendous source of the Lord's work in our lives because God uses them to mold and shape us as parents very often. Settles our priorities. Heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth and happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. That doesn't sound like, oh man, now I got another mouth to feed. Can't wait till you turn 18 so I can kick you out of the house. Your children are your children until you take your last breath while you're on this earth. Don't forget that. There's not a single case in Scripture where the Lord expected or commanded or even intimated that when a child reached a certain age, have a nice day. They are a heritage from the Lord. They are your children until you take your last breath. Remember that. They may be one day taking care of you, but they're still your kids. We live in a world that's devalued the the family in general, but very specifically the beauty of having children. We've gotten more and more selfish. We in this country are now, we're actually in a little bit of a conundrum. We actually have a birth rate that's so low that our population is decreasing. The only reason that we keep pace with our population is because of immigration. The average family does not have two kids. In case you can't do simple math, it takes two to make one. So if every mom and dad are not having at least two kids, we got a problem. Eventually, we're all going to croak. Children are a heritage from the Lord. One of the things that pains me so much in our day and time that, that we talk about babies as embryos or we talk about babies as a fetus. We talk about children in some way that diminishes the fact that every last one of them is created by God. Irregardless of the circumstances whereby that creation occurred, from God's perspective, children are a heritage from the Lord. And so we should have God's value on children. If God loves them, we should love them. There shouldn't be anything in our lives that that says, well, I, I don't really want to have this child. Not as believers. People in the world, we can understand. But the church, never. I want you to also notice something, that while we can't remember things that happened in the womb, you can't remember what happened when you were one or two years old either. So simply assigning the value of a child that it was one or two years old or it was born naturally is an absolute absurdity. A child is a child because God said it's a child. It's not a child because it's been in the womb X number of months. It's a child because it was uniquely fashioned by God. 
And so don't buy into the world's example of what value a child has. Newborn babies have feelings. They can exhibit emotion. They're quite capable of telling you exactly what they want, even though they may not understand why they want it. Children are precious in the sight of the Lord. But just like Jacob and Esau, they may also be wrestlers. They may fight. They may cause a problem or two. If you're a parent here, you know exactly what I'm saying. Children can be our greatest joy. They can also be our greatest source of pain, our largest difficulty, at times our our chief concern. We find Rebecca here puzzled because of this topsy-turvy condition that's in her in her belly, in her womb. And so she goes to the one place that she can actually get an answer. She goes to the Lord. Two utterly different people are inside of her womb. So much so that God says it's going to be two nations. Same mom, same dad, but these boys couldn't be more different. And it was their responsibility to raise both of them. And the nations that they're going to establish will inherit these tendencies that were evident when they were still in the womb. They were struggling. They were fighting. And so you get a little preview here uh, of of what we would say is the Arab-Israeli conflict, the battle that rages to this day between Israel and Jordan. If you know anything a little bit, or at least a little bit, about the history of the nation of Israel... May 14, 1948, Israel becomes a nation. Within a week, it's at war with 10 Arab nations surrounded. That battle is fought. Israel maintains possession of the land that was given to them, assigned initially under the Balfour Declaration, the Palestinian Mandate, this little tiny sliver of land. They go through a time of relative peace, But in less than 20 years, they're attacked again. During that initial period of time, they were allowed to occupy the Temple Mount. You still have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the Temple Mount. If you travel with us to this day, when you look at the top of the Temple Mount, the most prominent thing on there is not a synagogue. It's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's the Dome of the Rock Mosque. There are three mosques on top of the Temple Mount. And specifically the Dome of the Rock Mosque, which covers the stone that is believed to be the location of the altar that Abraham placed Isaac on. The dome glows in the morning sun. The reason it does so is the king of Jordan spent $9 million supplying gold leaf to cover the dome. Why? Because Jordan gained control of the Temple Mount in the 1967 Seven-Day War. The Israeli troops liberated the Temple Mount. Moshe Dayan, trying to make peace with Jordan, peace with his brother gave the Temple Mount back to Jordan. And to this day, 
there's conflict over the Temple Mount. Between who? Between Esau and Jacob. Between Israel and Jordan. Between the descendants of the Edomites and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. And in fact, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem is a Jordanian, and he controls access to the Temple Mount. So if you travel there, if the Grand Mufti is having a good day, then sometimes you can get on the Temple Mount. If he's having a bad day, you cannot get on the Temple Mount. The Jews are not allowed to pray there. They're not allowed to worship there. Occasionally, they can travel on to the Temple Mount, but they're watched by even their own police because it's such a volatile area because there is still a wrestling going on in the Middle East because this word is true. That these two boys would wrestle. That these two boys would struggle. And the younger would rule over the older. One of the youngest nations on the face of the earth is the nation Israel. Just celebrated its 70th birthday. 7-0. Of course, they've supposed to have been in the land for thousands of years and have been in that sense. But as a nation, they've come together again in the land. And so what we have here is a preservation of the messianic line, the line of Messiah. And it's interesting to me uh, that neither Seth nor Isaac nor Jacob or Judah or David, none of them were firstborn sons. Because God does things his way. Amen? And it's interesting to me that the fleshly side, which is the Esau side, God despises. God still despises flesh. God doesn't choose flesh. God always chooses spirit over flesh. And so we see that in this little record that's here. But God knew exactly what Isaac was going to need, and so he sends Rebekah into his life. And whatever mistakes that Isaac had made, Rebekah's going to be there to kind of help him see things correctly. But as a young man, he was willing to obey God. He put himself on the altar. Don't forget that. When you, when you look at, at Isaac, sometimes it's easy to look at these patriarchs and go, man, they're just so flawed. Why do we even care? But this is the same young man who is willing to do exactly what Romans 12 says, which is to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable, which is a reasonable service unto God there in in chapter 12 of the book of Romans. But almost always in our lives, as we think on the the way God works, if you haven't experienced this, you're going to experience this. You're going to have disappointment from time to time in your life. Anybody in here had disappointment in your life? Oh my goodness, every hand should go up. And one of the chief disappointments we face is the disappointment of waiting. Anybody else in here hate to wait? I hate waiting. I'm like, if you look up impatient, it says see Jeff. I'm just not a good waiter. I am that guy that, you know, I, I stand back, I kind of do this. I go to Sam's Club and I look at all the lines And every one of them's got like three or four carts. You know what I'm saying. 
And I look at the one lady who obviously looks like she has three carts, and I'm going, I'm not going in that line. And I go to the one where the guy's got like one thing of paper towels, and then one of the six packs of flashlights, which they always have, and you know, he's got like two things. And I get behind him, and that's when the cash register goes on the fritz, right? You know exactly what I'm, because God's teaching me patience. And so I, I get behind that guy, and, and it's like, okay, I figure out that there's no more movement here, that God once again has allowed me to, to stand behind the only guy that's incapable of finding his Sam's Club card. He knew when he came in he needed the Sam's Club, but he doesn't have it with him. And so he calls his aunt, his uncle, and his cousin. They're going to bring one, and I'm going to be there for three days. So what do I do? My, my unwaiting self, my disappointed self, goes back to the lady who had the three carts now. They've grown because someone brought her another one. And I, and I get behind her because, you know, well, God was teaching me. So I'll just get behind this, and I'll just be. And all of a sudden, you know, she has to go back and find the three sale items in her coupons. I hate waiting. But you know what? Sometimes delays are the most beautiful thing that we experience in our lives as believers. Where God is saying, you know, Jeff, you need need to learn something. You need to be here for a moment. You need to have an opportunity. And then somebody walks up and they start talking. And they go, hi, Pastor Jeff. Yes, I was in the third line over and I came over here and I went back over there and yes, that was me grumbling and complaining. Pray for patience. We get disappointed sometimes, but our times are always in God's hands. I know what I found out. All of my anxiousness never makes it quicker. It doesn't change the outcome. It rarely does anything good, but it quite frequently brings something that's problematic into my life. And so I, I've learned that when I see those things, I just need to start praying. It's like, Lord, okay, you know why this is going on. And while I'm not perfect yet, I'm a lot better than I used to be. It may not seem like it sometimes to my poor bride, but I actually am better. One day when I get to heaven, I'll be really good. But Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years for Isaac to be born. Jacob had to wait, labor 14 years to get both his wives. Joseph will wait 20 years to be reconciled to his brother. Sometimes we just have to wait. Amen? So we need to learn that lesson. Just because God's told you wait does not mean he's telling you no. It just means he's telling you wait. And there are some big things that unfortunately God is very prone to telling us, wait. Notice a couple of them here. Wife, spouse, and kids. Sometimes we're like, well, you know, I'm pretty sure that's my bride. I'm pretty sure that's my husband. And God's saying, "Mm -mm 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 -mm," because I know some things you don't know. You got to be willing to wait on the Lord. You gotta be willing to trust him. Our times are in his hands and his timing are absolutely never wrong. God's never wrong. You realize that? God is never wrong. So if you truly believe that he is who he says he is, then he's never wrong. 
And Psalm 31, verse 15 says this, My times are in your hand, Lord. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies, from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant and save me for your mercy's sake. If you truly believe what the Bible says about God's timing, your time is in his hands. It may seem like it's all on you, but it's actually in the Lord's hands. God works in his time. God doesn't, God doesn't call you up in the morning. At least he doesn't call me up. He doesn't say, Jeff, well, what would you like to do today? When would you like to do it? You know, I, I was just thinking, you know, man, I should check in with you because you're all wise. And he doesn't do that, amen? Praying and waiting sometimes are really hard, aren't they? I don't know how you guys are with praying and waiting, but I, I you know, it's not one of my, it's not one of my great gifts. It's one of those things I, I'm, I'm better at than I used to be, but boy, I, I have to wait just like you do. But that praying and waiting, that obedience to the Lord is the path to blessing. That's the path to blessing. That's the path to having what God wants for you is by praying and waiting, being able to wait. God was fully aware that he made a promise to Abraham. Amen? What was that promise? That through you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That your descendants would be as numerous as the sand of the sea, the stars in the heavens. God was very aware that that was the promise that was made to him. If Isaac doesn't have any children, what happens to God's promise? It's null and void. God lied. And of course, that isn't what God did. So God had a plan. Isaac and Rebekah had to wait on that plan. It's a lesson for all of us. Every Jewish couple would have wanted children. So Isaac wasn't praying selfishly. He was praying in faith, believing the promises of God. Pray in faith, believe the promises of God. Even though you're delayed in the answer that God may bring to you, even though there might be some disappointment along the way, it's only God that can turn that disappointment into the light. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, Therefore, the Lord will wait. Why? That he may be gracious unto you. And therefore, he will be exalted. He will have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed are those who wait for him. Learn to wait on the Lord. Learn to trust in the Lord. In this little prophetic window here, we get a little window into the strife that's in the Middle East to this day. Difficulty at home would be would ultimately become difficulty in the world. As these two children struggled together in the womb and two nations would come out of them, the older would serve the younger. The Jewish people, Jacob, would become the head. And they are today. One of the, one of the great things that you see when you travel to, to Israel is this incredibly prosperous little tiny nation called Israel and the immense poverty that surrounds them in all of the Arab nations that surround this little tiny Jewish nation. It's mind-boggling. It's even true within the country. As you're traveling around on a tour bus, you can actually pick out the settlements that are the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Ishmael. 
There's a difference in how they look and how they're landscaped and the, the general condition of the homes. It's like night and day. Israel is blessed. They have the ninth largest economy in the world. Ninth largest economy. And yet they're only a little over 8,000 square miles. The whole country. They have tech giants there like you can't believe. The new Israeli shekel, the NIS, is one of the most stable currencies in the world. The younger, Israel, will rule over the older, Esau, Jordan. When you travel to Jordan, you go across the border into Jordan. And the Jordanians largely are friendly to Israel. I want to make that really clear. Probably of all the nations that surround Israel, the Jordanians are actually probably as close to an ally in the Arab world as Israel has. But it becomes very, very clear when you look from one side of the Jordan River to the other, on one bank of the Jordan River, you have the nation Jordan. On the other bank, you have the nation Israel. You have the West Bank territories. But there is immense farming, all kinds of prosperous agricultural ventures. And on the other side, it looks like little mom and pop gardens. On one side, you have these massive date groves that go on for miles. And Israel exports dates all over the world. But because there's still this strife, you know what happens to the Israeli dates when they're sold in Jordan? They're sold first to China. They're repackaged and sent back to Jordan because the animosity that exists in this passage still exists today, the Jordanians don't want to buy Israeli dates, even though they're the best dates in the world. So this little nation, remember what it says, two nations are in your womb. The older shall serve the younger. It's actually the beginning of the history of salvation. Just as God has chosen Isaac here, he didn't choose Ishmael. He would choose Jacob, not Esau. And of course, from Jacob would come the 12 tribes, and from the 12 tribes would come Messiah, Jesus. So this is the beginning of the history between the saved and the unsaved, the believers and the not. Those that are looking for Messiah and those that were not looking for Messiah. And when you see this history throughout the, the history of salvation, it was true in the birth of Isaac here. It's also true in the, son, the 12 sons of Jacob. It's true in Moses' life. It's true in Samuel's life and in David's life. It will actually be true in the life of Jesus Christ, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. It was by adoption that we were brought in. Amen? I'm not a firstborn. Israel's a firstborn. I'm an adopted son. You're adopted sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. God had blessed his people. That's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. I would to gather unto myself you, 
but you would not come. All these divine appointments you see here are, are pictures of things that will uh, be made more clear as we travel through the remainder of the book of Genesis. And so each of these children producing a different nation, this family squabble will turn into something that's national, still visible to this day. But what is also true is a house divided can't stand. Not in your house, not in my house, not in God's house, not in the house called America, not in the world. A house divided against itself will not stand. And so here you kind of have these two boys that were really from, from different positions in life. One that was kind of the outdoor guy and the other was kind of the, the introvert, if you will. One a homeboy, one a guy, you know, maybe a computer geek or something, you know, whatever. But you have two children from the same parents that look at the world very, very, very differently. And Rebecca, being that hands-on mom that she was, knew what was going on in the home. I want you to see that. She, she knew her boys. She understood what was going on in the house. It's unfortunate when you, when you look in our society and you see homes that are divided. You see parents and children put their own personal desires ahead of the will of the Lord. And ultimately it creates division in the home. You see, this division was not intended by God. He just simply said, I know what's going to happen here. I didn't force them to be disassociated one with another. But you can kind of see how dad gravitates towards the, the son who's the hunter and mom gravitates towards the son who likes to play chess. And dads, I, w- I want to give you a little, a little counsel here. As a fellow dad, be careful about showing favoritism to your children. You're you're always going to find one that you associate more closely with. And moms, this is really true for you too, but you do a better job at this generally than us guys. Because I think us guys are a, a little bit more gravitated towards the things that we can do. We can hang out, we can, you know, we just identify it's so like if there's a sport and you have two sons or three sons and two of them play that sport and one doesn't, you kind of gravitate towards the two that do. And that's very visible here. You have the responsibility to love all of your children regardless of whether they're the homebody or whether they're the athlete. Whether they're the child that does well in school or whether they're the child that struggles a little bit in school. Dads, we need, to, we need to step up and love our kids and be home for them and love on them and make sure that they know that they'll always be loved. I think sometimes we surrender what is our rightful place to the government. We surrender it sometimes to the school districts. And again, that's not bashing teachers at all. That's just simply saying, I, I've been called to raise my own children in the training, the admonition of the Lord. And even though they are different, they need to both know that they are loved by me. And if you gravitate towards those things, as you can see here, 
There's a little bit of carnality almost that's visible here. Esau is kind of the man's man. He's the he's the guy that you know sits around and probably would have more of a sports mind. And maybe if you're you're that kind of guy, you might gravitate towards that one child that's bent that way. We need to be careful to not let our, our carnal desires dictate the kind of parents we're going to be. We need to make sure that we've girded up, as as First Peter says, the loins of our mind, being sober. We need to be obedient children ourselves, not conforming ourselves to, to the things that we used to love, those lusts of the flesh. We did that in ignorance before we knew the Lord. Now we should be holy. And God loves every last one of our kids. And we should love them as well. And the final thing, and I'm going to have the pastors come forward and be available for prayer. Isaac does something that's almost unthinkable here. He, he actually kind of allows Esau, at, at least allows if he didn't know about it, to forfeit his birthright for a bowl of beans. It's nuts. When, when we see things going on in our children's life and they're going the wrong direction or doing the wrong thing, we have an obligation to stand up and tell our kids that oh, that's not Okay. We've kind of gotten into that time in our in our culture to where it's like, well, I don't want to, you know, don't want to quench the spirit here. Now, when you know that there's a right way, you know that there's something that's not right, it's not okay with the Lord. Be bold enough to tell your children in love, son, daughter, I don't think this is what God has for you, and stand on it. Isaac could have done that. But we don't find that he does. He, he passes on it. And so consequently, Jacob even gets a little carnality himself, even though he's going to be the one that will inherit the birthright. He's going to be the one through whom the promise will be passed. He, he's going to be the progenitor, if you will, uh, of the Messiah. He's still a little bit of a heel catcher. That's what his name means. That's what ultimately because it sounds like a keb or a cob, which means to take from behind or overtake, he gets a nickname of, well, he's kind of a little bit of a schemer. Isaac could have stepped in and said, you know what, boys, this is not how we go in our house. This isn't how we roll. Take your parenting seriously. The prediction here proved to be true. It remains true to this day. There's still a struggle between these boys. And so I challenge you, if you're here tonight and you're a parent, focus on your kids. Pour yourself into them. Live your life godly in Christ Jesus so that they know that there's no compromise. That you're willing to stand on the word of the Lord, regardless of the cost. And no matter what happens, you're not going to deviate from what God has spoken into your life you're unwilling to take the shortcuts, you're unwilling to scheme, that you'll be parents of truth, especially us husbands. We have the responsibility, men, to lead. 
And we should take that seriously. We should be able to say, Lord, I did everything I possibly could. There was nothing left for me to do. And be careful what you teach your kids. Be obedient. And from that obedience comes blessing. The opposite is you can be carnal and it will breed carnality in your children. But God wants us to have children that look like Jesus. Amen? Father, thank you for this time tonight. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak truth into our lives through it. God, we we pray for those of us tonight that are parents. I pray for those that want to be parents. Or maybe there are some here tonight that desperately want to be married. And, And God, you know what you have in store for them, the plan that you have for them. And we know that your word declares that your plans are good, they're not evil, they're a future, they're a hope. And yet, Lord, you haven't revealed those plans maybe to some. And pray for us as parents that you'd cause us to to be diligent in being obedient to your word, that we'd be examples of Christ-likeness, that we would dwell on those things which are noble and good and lovely and of a good report. God, that you would bless us with, with the strength to, to be the kind of parents that you would want us to be in this difficult world. Lord, we, we confess to you, it's hard. We gravitate sometimes towards those things which are not helpful to our children. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us the strength to set aside maybe even some of those liberties that might harm our kids. Lord, we love you. We're, we're grateful that you pick up after us, Lord, that you've fixed our mistakes and God, you've been so gracious to me personally as a dad. And God, I thank you for that. Thank you for my boys. Lord, they are truly a joy. And pray that, God, as we endeavor to to live for you, that you would just help us in our areas of weakness. God, strengthen us for the days that lie ahead. Lord, let your people who are called by your name be the first to turn from those things which are wicked. Lord, we need you to heal our land after the events of this last week. Oh, God, only you can fix these things that are so broken that people would walk into a grocery store and shoot somebody because of the color of their skin. It just can't be, Lord. And someone would walk into a synagogue and kill 11 people. God, it just can't be. Help us, Lord. We need you to help us. Lord, we have some elections coming and we need your wisdom to know how to vote. Lord, we know that righteousness exalts a nation. But unrighteousness is a downfall and so God, help us to to be righteous in all that we do and say. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us even when we make mistakes. We ask all this in the precious, the blessed, the wonderful, the beautiful name, the name of Jesus. Amen.